you will, turn with me in your scripture to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. I've got to tell you, it's such an honor to be here with you today. I grew up in this church. My mother uh, at 97 is in Claiborne, and she was a member for 65 years. My dad used to work the booth every Sunday doing the sound audiovisuals. And so I love to come back here and just to visit. It's great to come back here and preach. Preached my first sermon here many, many moons ago. Um, and, and, and Tom, you were right. I can still remember Dr. Harold Hammett and Arliss Anderson trying to chase me and catch me because I really didn't want to listen and I didn't want to be here. But uh, I'm glad they did. I learned most of the Bible verses that I still remember because Joanne and Dot Harrelson taught me in Bible drill. So it truly is an honor to be here to share with you this morning. And um, I, this church was a great base of ministry for me. I was in the ministry for 45 years, returned at, or retired after 27 in um, Harrisburg Baptist. And yes, I've been taking groups to Israel for, well, I've taken at least 15 groups. I started with Dr. Jerry Vardaman back in 1983 and got several of the Kemp's, the Flurries, uh, Lucy Carpenter, others are going with me at the end of this month. We leave on April 30th. I've got 50 folks going with me going to Israel. And I love it there, and um, I will look forward to being with you. Have you ever been discouraged? Have you ever been depressed? Have you ever said, just had the blues, or maybe you felt like a failure? Maybe you felt like just giving up. Have, have you ever thought you were the worst Christian in the whole world? That there's just no use trying because you know you're going to fail. You know you're not going to make it. Have there been times when nothing seemed to be going right? There's, nobody was listening. Nobody cared. Maybe there have been times when your enemies were taunting you. Somebody was bullying you. Your friends didn't understand you. You were doing your absolute best to do God's will, and yet everything seemed to be falling apart. The year was 1928. The place was Washington, D.C., and it was the strangest auction that's ever taken place in U.S. history. It was at the U.S. Patent Office, and they had no more room to store all the patents that uh, were not in place. And so the government had to, to, to sell these or give them away, and they had an auction for all the unused patents. And there were several there. Some were humorous. Uh, some were interesting. Some dated back as far as the 1800s. There was an illuminated cat to scare away mice. There was a gadget that would churn milk and rock the baby at the same time. And my favorite was an anti-snoring device. It went from your mouth to your ear. Supposedly, you would hear yourself snoring and wake up. Now, most people just laughed at all of this, but there was one reporter that was covering the story. And he didn't laugh because he thought of all the broken dreams. 150,000 people who thought that their device, the thing that they came up with, was going to make them rich and make them famous, make them happy. He thought of all those broken dreams. And folks, that's the greatest producer of discouragement. Broken dreams, broken promises, mistakes that that we seem unable to overcome. In the Old Testament, Nehemiah was charged with the task of rebuilding the temple, excuse me, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And he could have easily become discouraged. He could have easily have just given up and said, you know, I just can't do it. It's just too much. But he didn't. And the task of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem are what I want to talk about today because it produces three reasons that we get discouraged and three reasons are three ways to overcome those discouragements. So turn with me, Nehemiah chapter 4, as we read together, beginning in verse 1. When Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? 
Will they finish in a day? Can they bring stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? And Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their walls of stone. Hear us, O our God, for we're despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they've thrown insults into the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till it all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. They were rebuilding the walls. They were doing God's will. And verse 6 tells us they had put their whole heart, their whole life, every fiber of their being had gone into this work. And yet what was happening? Their enemies were taunting them. They were ridiculing them. They were persecuting them. The, the verbal assault they were under, did you catch some of the things they were saying? They were asking these questions. They were taunting them, saying, they don't know what they're doing. Look, look at what they're working with. They're using burned stone. Nobody uses burned stone. That's stupid. That's ridiculous. They made fun of them. They laughed at them. And Tobiah in verse 3 said, it's a house of cards. If a fox jumps up on this wall, the wall is going to fall over. But in spite of the taunts, in spite of everything that was being said about them, look at how they responded. Look back at verse 3, or excuse me, verse 5. It said, for they've thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall until it reached half of its height. In spite of the ridicule, in spite of all the verbal attacks, the people were not discouraged. The people had not lost heart. But then look at the rest of the passage because things changed. Verse 7, but when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come up and to fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Now, meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. And there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the peoples, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. And when the enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. Look back for a moment at verse 9. It says, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Did you catch what he's saying? In the beginning, they did it right. In the beginning, they were praying. They were guarding against the attacks of the enemies. They worked hard to do God's will, and, and, and they were ready for any attack that might come their way. So, so what happened? If they were doing all this, why in the world did they get discouraged? What changed their hearts? These people were praying. They were seeking God's will. They were doing everything they thought to accomplish God's will. They were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. So what caused them to become discouraged? Well, that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to take just a brief amount of time and share with you three reasons that we become discouraged and three ways to overcome that discouragement. 
So first of all, let me share with you three things that cause discouragement. And the first of these is fatigue. There's an outline in your bulletin if you want to use it that I'll be using this morning. The first thing that causes discouragement is fatigue. Look back at verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said their strength was failing. The strength of the laborers is giving out. When are people most easily defeated by Satan? When are we the most easily tempted by Satan? It's when we're tired. We get emotional. We get irritable. We get grouchy. Our thinking becomes cloudy. The, the, the things we start doing, we, we, we don't need to do. We make the wrong choices. You see, when we're tired, we make emotional decisions. When we're tired, our, our feelings make our decisions. When we're tired, we're so irritable and easily upset. We're ill-tempered. We make snap judgments, and we snap at people. And Satan knows this, so he knows the best thing to do is to keep us busy and to keep us tired. The first cause of discouragement is fatigue. The second cause is frustration. Frustration. Look again at verse 10. There's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Have you ever been overwhelmed and you said to yourself, you know, if this were just one problem, I could handle it. If if there was just one thing I needed to deal with, I, I could deal with that. But it's just so many things. There's so many problems. There's so many issues. There's so much stuff and junk in front of me. I just can't handle it. You know, when you're frustrated, When you're overwhelmed, the simplest thing can frustrate you. The simplest thing that you could, honestly, you could handle at any other time is not an issue. But because you're frustrated, you get easily upset or easily overwhelmed. It's the little things. We've all had it happen. Something breaks. Something spills. Something doesn't go right. Something won't open. Somebody didn't do what they were supposed to be. Somebody didn't show up when they were supposed to. Somebody wasn't there when you needed them. It was the little things that normally would not upset us. And we just laugh about it. We'll get past it. We'll clean it up. But now it makes us frustrated. And now we get easily upset. And now we even start to cry. You see, it's not just the little things, too. It's the big things. When Christians won't act like Christians, when friends that we counted on don't keep promises, when people don't do what they're supposed to do, when your prayers seem to be unanswered, Your devotional life becomes non-existent and you feel like you're just going through the motions and your joy, your joy is gone. So you get frustrated and then you get discouraged. So the first cause of discouragement is fatigue. The second is frustration. And the third cause is failure. Failure. Again, look back at verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble we cannot rebuild the wall. You see, they were afraid they couldn't do it. They, did, they had a fear that they wouldn't be able to finish the job so they didn't start. Let me just tell you, of all the fears that exist in the world, the fear of failure is the greatest one. If you're afraid that you're going to fail, if you think that you're going to fail, quite often you won't even try. You, you feel like a failure as a husband, as a wife, as a child, as a parent. You feel like a a failure as a father, a mother, a a, a worker, as a friend. And then worst of all, you start to feel like a failure as a Christian. You've tried to do what's right, but you failed. You've tried your best, and you failed. And, And you feel like you've let God down, and you feel like an absolute failure. 
Many of you might not recognize the name of Clarence Darrow, one of the most famous lawyers that's ever existed. And Clarence Darrow uh, befriended a young minister, which was really interesting because Clarence Darrow was an avowed agnostic and atheist. And while they were talking one day, Clarence Darrow turned to his friend and he was reflecting on his life and he said, you know, I guess I'm considered a success. I've got all this money. I've got fame. I've got recognition. I've had all these famous trials that I presided over for the defense. And he said, I guess I'm considered a success. And he turned to, the, to his minister friend and he said, would you like to know what my favorite Bible verse is? And the minister went, well, sure. I didn't even know you owned a Bible. You know, I didn't even know you, you, you knew what the Bible was. He said, yes, you'll find it in Luke chapter 5, verse 5, and it says, we've toiled all the night and taken nothing. We've toiled all the night and taken nothing. And he turned to his minister friend. He said, you know, in spite of everything that I've accomplished, that's what I feel my life is like. When I read that story, I thought, how sad. How really sad. This man had it all. He had everything he could want. Fame, recognition, power, money, fortune. He owned it all. Folks, this is a powerful reminder that no matter what we own, no matter how much we have, no matter who knows us, no matter how much fame or popularity or recognition, if we don't have a personal, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ, nothing else matters. And we will always feel frustrated. And we will always be discouraged, even if we have the whole... In fact, that's what Jesus said. What should it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet lose his own soul? I love to hear people, though, of stories that... It seems like they have failed, but they haven't. Because, you know, too many people think that failure is final. They think that they, once they failed at something, once they couldn't accomplish something, once they couldn't do something, maybe they failed at this grade and they, they feel like I'm going to be a failure for the rest of my life. Or maybe they failed at their first job and they feel like I'll never get another job. Well, I love to collect stories of people that seem like they failed but haven't. Let me share a few of them with you. One of my favorites is Decker Recording Company. In 1962, here's the statement they made to a group. We don't like their sound. Groups of guitars are on their way out. Some of you already know who they said this to. In 1962, they turned down a recording contract with the Beatles because they said, we don't like their sound. Groups of guitars are on their way out. Isaac Newton did so poorly in school that he was called unpromising. Isaac Newton discovered all the laws of gravity, was called unpromising. Albert Einstein was told by a Munich schoolmaster, and I quote from the German, you will never amount to very much. I don't guess Albert Einstein ever did amount to very much. There are so many examples. I, I, let me just give you a few more real quickly. Thomas Edison was told in grade school that he was too stupid to learn anything. Walt Disney, oh, you'll love this one. Walt Disney was fired by a newspaper editor, and I quote, because he lacked imagination and had no original ideas. <laughs> Winston Churchill flunked out of sixth grade because he couldn't pass the standardized test. Babe Ruth, the greatest baseball player of all times, also struck out 1,300 times, which is a major league record. And my favorite, especially in this season we're in now, Michael Jordan was cut from his high school basketball team. Folks, failure is not final. Look back at verse 10. 
What were the people saying? There's too much rubble. There's too many obstacles. There's too many problems. We just can't do it. We're going to fail. We cannot rebuild the wall. The failure that you experience and the failure of failure, that fear of failure will also produce the greatest discouragement that you'll ever have in your life. Fear of failure will keep you depressed. Now, if those are the three things, the frustration, the failure, the fatigue, if those are the things that produce discouragement, how do we overcome it? And that's the most important thing I want to share with you today. Three principles for overcoming discouragement. Number one, reorganize. Look back at verse 13. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, with their spears, and with their bows. Now, what was Nehemiah saying that he did? First of all, he reorganized. He, he, he gave them a specific task to do. He gave them a new point of focus. You know, when you're discouraged, what's the first thing you need to do? Get organized. Organize your desk. Organize your life. Organize your schedule. And, and discipline yourself. Quit procrastinating. Get on a schedule. Start today. Don't wait. Don't put it off. If you ever go to a counselor, if you've been uh, going through depression, one of the first things they're going to do is tell you, get back on a schedule. Don't sleep late in the morning. Get up at the regular time. Do the same thing that you've been doing. Get some discipline in your life. Because you see, when people get discouraged, what do they do? They overeat or they undereat. They sleep too little or they sleep too much. You get out of schedule, you get out of whack, and you need to get back on schedule. That's a biblical principle. Get back and do the things. Get up in the morning. Start to work. And even if you're not working, get up in the morning anyway. Spend time with the Lord. Stay up late. Spend time with the Lord. Whatever it is, spend time with the Lord. Because, folks, when, when people get discouraged, let me tell you the first two questions I ask them. If they come to me and say, I'm discouraged, I said, let me ask you, how's your prayer life? How's your Bible study time? And let me ask you those questions today. How is your prayer life? How's your Bible study time? Because many times, the first thing to go when we get discouraged is our Bible study time, our prayer life. And, and sometimes it works just the opposite because people will keep praying, but they stop studying the Scripture. And let me tell you, that can produce even more problems. You might be looking, really? Let me tell you what I mean. If you, by the way, God gave us one mouth and two ears, we need to listen twice as much as we talk. When you're talking is when you're praying. When you're listening is when you pick up God's Word and hear what it says. God is going to speak to you through His Word. But if you're talking to Him all the time and you're praying and praying and praying and praying and praying, but you're not studying His Word, how are you going to hear the answer? How are you going to receive a word from God? It's going to come out of his word because it is a word from God. This scripture is God's word. And too many people, what they'll do is they'll stop studying the scripture and they'll keep on praying and then they get even more discouraged. Why? Because they're talking and talking and talking and God's saying, I want to give you an answer. Listen. But we're not listening because we don't pick up the word of God. Folks, let me challenge you today. The first thing you need to do, if you're discouraged, is to get back into God's Word. And by the way, there's another part of this that you need to do. It's called partialization. Now, partialization is just a modern word that we use for dealing with one thing at a time. Partialize it out. Deal with one thing, one subject at a time. 
You see, when the Israelites looked at the situation, they said, there's too much rubble. And we tend to do the same thing. We look at a big pile of stones and said, it's too big, it's too massive, we can't do it. And God says, one stone at a time. Just deal with one stone at a time. Pick up one rock and deal with that. Then go back up and pick another rock and deal with that. What's the solution? Anytime you have a problem, one stone at a time, one problem at a time, one issue at a time. Now, I know everybody's heard the old joke, how do you eat an elephant? Right, one bite at a time. It's not funny, but it's true. Why? Because you have to grab one piece at a time, and that's all you can do. If you look at the whole thing, you're going to become overwhelmed. If you look at all the issues that you're facing in life, you're going, I can't handle these. And you're right, you can't. But if you look at them one at a time through God's eyes, I'll guarantee you, you can resolve anything and everything. This was Nehemiah's solution. Reorganize and partialize. Spread out the rubble and then clear away the rubble one piece at a time. Don't look at the entire problem. Don't look at the entire pile of rubble. Look at it one stone at a time. So first of all, he reorganized. Second, he reevaluated. He reevaluated. Verse 14, after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Did you catch that? He said, when he looked things over, what was he doing? He, he was reevaluating. He was reassessing the situation. And, and he also realized that there was nothing to fear because God had a plan and God was in control. So he told them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of them. You know, if you're going to deal with discouragement, you need to reevaluate your fears because if you're afraid to fail, you will. But if you're not afraid to fail, you won't. And if you're not afraid to fail because God's got it, why are you going to be discouraged? If this God's handling this problem, why is there any reason to be discouraged? God's got it. You know, so often we have, we're afraid because we're still trying to handle it ourselves. We're still trying to do it ourselves. In Psalm 23, David writes, <clears throat> excuse me, I will fear no evil. Why? Because I rod and I staff that they comfort me. And thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You see, David's saying, okay, now I've got to shore up this defense. I've got to do this over here. I've got to get this ready. And God says, no, you don't, David. Let's eat. And David says, what? You don't understand, Lord. The enemy's at the gate. The enemy's there. God says, I know, but I've got this, David. I've got this. You quit worrying about it. I'll handle it. We're going to sit down and eat. How many of us, when the situation is drastic, when the problems are immense, when things seem to be overwhelming, would say, okay, let's sit down and eat. We've got to be doing something. And God says, no, you don't. I'm the one that has to be doing something. You just listen to me, have fellowship with me. By the way, David also made the promise in there. He says, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. One of the greatest promises, thou art with me. Jesus' last words on this earth were, and lo, I am what? With you always. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is Hebrews 13, 5. It says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, some of you know this, but if you don't, in the Greek, that's not what it says. Because in English, when you have two Negative words, they cancel each other. It's like multiplying a negative one by a negative one. You come up with a positive one. But in Greek, they multiply each other. They don't cancel each other out. 
They're actually, let me tell you what that verse says in the Greek. It doesn't say, I will never leave you or forsake you. It says, I will never, no, not ever, no, never leave you nor forsake you. Five negative words. Isn't that incredible? God is promising you that he will never, ever leave you nor forsake you. Now, for all you Greek scholars, that's called a synergistic compounding negative. I'm sure you'll remember that tomorrow on your way to work. I will never, no, not ever, no, never leave you or forsake you. If you forget everything else I said this morning, remember that. I will never, no, not ever, no, never. God wanted to make the point so clearly that he used five negative words to say, I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. God says when the enemy comes, when Goliath is standing at the door, sit down, let's do lunch, let's eat. Nehemiah had done everything he was supposed to do. He was still doing God's will, even though the enemy was still there. And he said, don't be afraid, don't worry. I think he remembered the story passed down from what God said to Joshua in Joshua 1.9. Most of you memorize this verse. It says, do not be afraid. Don't be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. First of all, he reorganized. Second, he reevaluated, and finally, he remembered. Look back at verse 14, a great and wonderful verse. It says, after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. What a passage. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. Remember his promises. Remember his blessings. Remember his grace. Remember his mercy. Remember the Lord. 2 Corinthians 1.10 is one of my favorite promises out of Scripture. Let me encourage you to write that reference down and go back and read it sometime. And I want to use that as we close this morning. 2 Corinthians 1.10 says, He has delivered us, He will deliver us, and He will continue to deliver us. He delivered us in the past. He will, continue, he will deliver us in the present. And He will continue to deliver us in the future. Remember the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer.